Uh, you can open your Bible. We're going to uh, start here in a moment, but you can start turning to this text. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 14 this morning. Uh, and I wanted to share one announcement as you are turning toward that. It's something that I've been particularly excited about this week. Um, some of you I know are visiting with us. Maybe you came because you're a family member of someone who got baptized or a classmate or maybe you're a guest with us. I want to share something briefly that's more geared towards our church family, uh, but something I'm really excited about. Um, some of you uh, know Jake Osborne. He was the second baptizer here. He's one of the more forceful baptizers we've seen, which is awesome. Uh, but uh, for several years, he's been part of our church. I think almost a decade he's been part of our church, even since he was a Grace College undergrad student uh, and then he has worked on staff at our church for several years and a couple years ago we started this process of evaluating him to potentially become one of the elders of our church which we think of elders and pastors the same uh, and he's gone th through for a few years now a process a very thorough process of a lot of uh, there's a studying and writing and test taking component to it and there's just some of us evaluating him as we see him live as we see him minister to people and we've been encouraged throughout uh, throughout that process this last week he took the final test a final exam of sorts that's necessary for him to become an elder in our denomination and he passed it with flying colors he did excellent at it uh, so well done Jay um, and so uh, we as the pastors the current pastors wanted to recommend him Gladly, gladly, joyfully recommend him uh, to us as a collective church family that we really would like him now to become an elder with us, to join us in those ranks. Um, one of the last steps we want to do, though, is to take this month that's about to start this week, this month of February, and to invite you, especially if you're a member of our church, if there's uh, any feedback you would want us to, get, to give to us before we would make things formal with regard to him, even if it's, especially I would say, if it's affirming and encouraging of the Lord's work and his life uh, to you and toward our church, we would love to hear that. Any of the pastors would love to hear from you and talk with you. Uh, and assuming that all, that all goes well, we'll keep you updated, but we'd like to to set a date uh, within the next few months, hopefully, where we could have an ordination service for him uh, to install him publicly, pray for him uh, as a fellow pastor here. But he is a gift to our church. I wanted to publicly commend him and invite you to give us feedback this upcoming month. Uh, but Jake, we're thankful for you, brother, and the ways you have discipled for years here, and that I look forward to seeing how you will uh, for hopefully decades to come, as long as Jesus stays in heaven and you stay alive. I hope that the Lord has you ministering here uh, in our congregation with me with us as your church family uh, well let's turn to the word here in a moment i'm going to read this text here in just a minute but uh, this has been a wonderful morning of worship i've been looking forward to this sunday all week um, but even beyond that um, we got to witness baptisms uh, of six folks uh, to to profess their faith in the lord and their commitment to live for him now moving forward we got to hear some of the younger people in our church share verses that they've been learning uh, my son was thrilled to be up here uh, to to share uh, verses that they've been learning it was great to hear the Wayland's testimony of how God's even used a gift from our church body to help encourage them in discipling of their children and, and my prayer is that we can continue to be a church that reaches the generations with the gospel uh, that we tell them the same good news that's come to us and what you witness in baptism we didn't, didn't get to talk about it much beforehand but when we baptize someone there's a lot of things happening but one of the things is that it's a visual picture that they are now united with Jesus that their old sinful self, as all of us are born, has been crucified with Christ. That that old self is gone and dead, was crucified with Christ. And now that they 
are united with him by faith. They've been made into a new person. Uh, they're raised to walk in newness of life, we say when we bring them back up out of the water, right? Baptism is a picture, when we see it, uh, that they are now going to live their life entirely, the entirety of their life for him. Not just part of it, not just Sunday morning, not just in reading their Bible, not just in their prayer life, um, but all of them now belongs to Jesus. Every dimension, every moment of their life belongs to him. And even as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and even in the text we're trying to memorize from Deuteronomy 6, we see that God calls his people to love him with all their heart, soul, and might. Not just a component of them, but with the entirety of who they are. And so we are to follow Jesus, if we're his people, with all of our, our, all of ourselves, every dimension of us, right? Every minute, every aspect of our life. For the youngest kids in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, it shows in how you obey your parents. For the parents in the room, your following of Jesus includes how you treat your children, right? Uh, following Jesus includes how we honor our spouse, if we have a spouse, how we relate to our buddy at preschool, right? And how we relate to our next door neighbor in the nursing home right? Uh, there's no time limit on it. There's no limit to it. Every part of us is to live for Christ. There's no neutral spots, right? It's all for Christ. And we're going to see this in today's text because Moses is going to talk to his fellow Israelites about some parts of their life that may feel, some may feel spiritual to us, some may not. But he's going to talk to them about three different domains of their life that are intended to be lived for God, that are not neutral, that, but they are intended to be lived for God. And we're going to, I hope, as we walk through this text, and we'll just have to skim over parts of it uh, as we cover through it, but I, I hope that the Lord impresses upon us that if we belong to Christ, then all of our life is to be lived for him. No exception. No domains are neutral. Uh, that is all to be lived for him. And so what we're about to read is part of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we've been going through for a few months now. We have a few months left. Uh, it is like a farewell speech of Moses uh, to the ancient Israelites. He was 120 when he delivered this, about to die. Uh, they are, his nation's about to go into the promised land finally. Uh, soon after this speech uh, ends, they're about to go in the promised land. So it's a recording uh, in word of his speech that he gave to them. And it's also structured kind of like a treaty, like an agreement of how God wanted to deal with his people as they go into that land. This is how you live for me. And he lists off a lot of different domains of this is how you live in this domain of life. This is how you're to live in this domain of life. And we're going to come to three of those today. I'm going to use these headings and you can look for them uh, as I read uh, this chapter here in a moment. But we're going to talk about how God gives them directions about more or less, about funerals, about food, and about finances. Funerals, food, and finances. So I'm going to read chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Kids who are in the room, uh, when, we, when you hear a preacher speak the best part of the sermon, that, which is what I'm doing right now, is when he reads the Bible itself. And this is a long passage. I'm going to talk for a couple minutes to read this, but this is the most important part of what uh, I will say to you today. Uh, so I'd encourage you to try to listen. Even if you don't know all the words on the page, try to listen uh, and uh, follow along with me in your copy of the Scripture or just in, in listening. So Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, all the way to the end of the chapter, reads like this. This is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof are unclean for you, and the pig, we're all sad about that for them, and the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year And lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the word of the Lord. Much that could be said here. Uh, I want to try to share a few thoughts from this text. um, But... Note in this chapter and really in this whole entire middle section of Deuteronomy, Moses is telling them to live every domain of life for him, uh, for the Lord, right? That, That there's all these different domains of life. But what you see Moses do over and over again is he doesn't just tell them to do these commands in a vacuum, just for no reason, just do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this. He always ties his commands about how to live life to their identity as God's people 
as the people that he has chosen, as the people that he has saved. Did you know a couple of times, especially near the beginning of this chapter, Moses, before even giving them commands, he tells them who they are, who God has made them into, right? In the very first verse that I read a few minutes ago, he says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Then he gives a command about funerals, more or less. He says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Then in verse 2, he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord's chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the earth. So God's chosen you to be holy. So you've been made into his children. He chose you to be holy. He says that again in verse 11. Uh, and Moses, over and over again throughout this whole speech uh, of Deuteronomy, it's not explicit in this text, but he reminds them again and again and again in the, all the other chapters how God has rescued them from Egypt. He, he says, do you guys remember this? Don't ever forget this. God saved you out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought you now to this new land. He's miraculously rescued you. Now live for him. He doesn't just say live for him. And he certainly doesn't say live for him to get God to love you. Do these things to get God to give his favor to you. Get, do these things to become God's children. He says God has chosen you God has saved you. Now go do these things. Now go live this way for him. And that's the, the theme of Deuteronomy. It's not just these laws to follow, but a reminder that God has changed you. God has saved you. Now go live for him. And the same is true for us as Christians. We are not under this law. We're not part of this covenant whose rules we were reading this morning. But the same thing is true in this new covenant that God has with his people now is that God doesn't tell any of us, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, so that you can become my child, so that you can have my approval, so that you can earn my love. He doesn't treat us that way. He says, I have saved you. I have sent my son into this world to be crucified in your place, to die in your place for your sins so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be adopted into my family. I have saved you. Now go live for me. Go live as changed people. Live as holy people. That is the same pattern that was true of them. They were saved and changed so that they could live for God. The same is true for us today. If we've been united with Christ, if we've, been, if we've turned from our sin, been united with Christ by faith, the one who died for us, was raised for us, then God has welcomed us into his family and now he calls us to live for him in every domain of life, including funerals, food, and finances. And so I want to talk briefly about each of these things that I think Moses was giving commands to his day and his people about and then try to see what, what should these domains look like in our lives today if we're united with Christ, if we've been changed, if we've been saved, if we've been made the sons and daughters of God, if we've been made into these people who are to live holy lives, how are we to live in these realms of funerals and food and finance? So I want to at least give a few thoughts of what Moses was communicating to them and then share what relevance I think these have in our life today. Because God still is in the business of changing identity in order to change life, right? So... First, I want to talk about, and this is just verse number one, is first heading. And don't think by the pacing of this, this is going to be a very, very, very long sermon. But I want to take a few minutes to talk about just verse one, this heading that I'm calling funerals. Uh, 
Moses starts this chapter with that, that reminder of their identity, that they have been made into sons of the Lord, their God. And then he gives this quick command. He says to them, he says, You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. I don't know exactly what that is getting at, but he is forbidding somehow the cutting of their bodies when one of their loved ones or a person in their community died, somehow they would be tempted to cut their bodies because that was what the Canaanites did. That as they're going into this land, as they worshiped their gods, they had developed these customs of cutting their bodies in different ways, it seems, to try to appease their gods, to try to somehow curry favor with their gods. And they, I don't know exactly what this looked like. We don't have pictures of it, but the Canaanites who they were about to live among would also shave parts of their forehead uh, as part of their mourning, part of their grieving, part of their engagement with their gods when their family members or their community members would die. And Moses is telling the Israelites, do not grieve like they do. Like when your people, when your community of people die, don't adopt the customs of these pagan people. Like you're not to grieve the way that they grieve. Now, I highly doubt that any of you, we've actually had several deaths even in the life of our church the last few weeks. I doubt that any of us are tempted when we have people in our church family or in our extended family, when we have them pass away, I doubt any of us are tempted to cut our bodies to appease the gods or to shave our foreheads somehow to engage with these gods. So we could just think, well, verse 1, we can chuck that. We don't really need that today. But I think we're missing the spirit of what Moses was saying. He was telling the people of God, and I think God would speak to us today still and say, my people, when, you, when people die among you, when people's lives end, do not just adopt the customs of the world and how they grieve. Do not just kind of go along with the flow of how culture teaches you to grieve the dead, right? Uh, we, we are not to just follow cultural cues about how we grieve the dead. We are to follow the word of God. And God's word doesn't give us a ton of detail about how to conduct funerals. It doesn't give us a script of how you do funerals or how we're to conduct burials or handle dead bodies, things like that. We don't have a lot of these specific guidelines about how to grieve. But one thing we are told to do as Christians, especially when someone among us dies in faith, dies trusting the Lord Jesus, is that we, part of our mourning, part of our grieving is to have hope mixed with it. Right? Uh, that is part, how we grieve the dead as Christians should be uniquely Christian. Right? That we may carry grief in common with people who don't know the Lord. We ought to carry uh, a weightiness when someone loses their life. But if we are someone who knows of the death and the resurrection of Christ, and we have confidence that this brother or sister who died was united with Christ, then we have hope and confidence that that brother or sister is with the Lord presently and that someday he or she will be raised from the dead with a body that will never be destroyed. And so when we grieve the death of a fellow believer, we ought to grieve, First Thessalonians 4 talks about this, we grieve as those who have hope. We don't grieve as those who don't have hope. So we do grieve as those who do have hope. And so uh, when we have loved ones who are believers die, we ought to, to mourn and grieve, not as the world does, but to grieve and mourn with hope mixed in and with hope even underneath of it. 
And when we have people in our lives who are unbelievers who pass away, this is where I think we may feel more temptation to just go with the flow of how culture grieves, of how, how they mourn the death of their friends or family. It is all too common when unbelievers in our life die, those who have no regard for Christ, when their family or friends or our family and friends gather around it is so tempting because they don't know the truth of scriptures often. It is so tempting for us to just get swept up into how they start to frame it, how they start to talk about this person, how they start to speak of this person being in a better place, being uh, at peace, being uh, with the Lord, things like that. And it is very tempting. Or they'll talk about them becoming angels, things like this, like that are not biblically true. And it can be very tempting as a Christian to just go with the flow and think how they think, or at least not uh, to, uh, not that we need to, be, funerals are not the place to be like theology police and be arrogant and brazen about it, but we should not be affirming of things that are false. Like we should not, you can reinforce in a bad way false hope for people. Uh, for their loved one or even for themselves as they imagine their own death. And so when we engage with people who are grieving the loss of an unbeliever, we need to not just go with the flow of how culture thinks about death, how culture thinks about the afterlife. We must stand upon the truth of the word. I would just say, side note, and then we'll move on to the second one, a side note to my fellow parents in the room. In this domain of, of trying to grieve uniquely as a Christian, I would encourage you, even with young children, to not shy away from the subject of death. Uh, to not, if you have loved ones uh, who are near to death or do pass away, to not feel like you need to insulate them and protect them entirely from the realities of death. Like we live in a fallen world where death is coming for all of us and where we need hope of a resurrection. And we need to not delay their facing of that. We could do it in harsh ways or, or kind of harmful ways, I think, if we force it in their face. But even this week, as, as soon as this week, five days from now, my family is headed out of state. We won't be here next Sunday, but to a, a funeral of a loved one, a close family member. And we're going to take our children with us because we want to slowly teach them how to grieve as the people of God. Uh, that, that there is a unique way that we grieve as the people of God. And so just encourage parents to not shy away from that. Uh, if you need help engaging with children about that, we would always be glad to talk to you. But the way that we think of death, the way that we attend funerals, the way that we grieve should be uniquely Christian, I would say, right? And so we don't cut ourselves, we don't make boldness on our foreheads. We, we grieve as people who have hope of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of us. So funerals was number one. This, this will not be at that same pace. The next section, verses 3 through 22, is what the heading I'll use of food. So he talked to them briefly, gave these directions about funerals, how to grieve the dead. This longer section, he gives some rules about food, things that they're allowed to eat, things they're not allowed to eat. And what Moses was sharing with those people uh, from verse 3 to 22 was really just a repeating, in large part, of Leviticus chapter chapter 11, these laws that God would have given to these same people 40 years prior, uh, God had given them these rules, these laws about animals that were okay to eat, animals that were not, animals that were clean to them, animals that were unclean to them. And you may have noticed he uses different categories. He started with land animals, and then he talked about sea creatures, and then he talked about flying things or birds and insects. All right, so he talked about three categories of them. And he says things that they are allowed to eat, things they're not allowed to eat. 
clean and unclean. I am not going to get into speculation, which I think it is largely speculation, of why God singled out certain animals to say, these are unclean for you. Uh, I don't know that we're given a lot of direction or insight into why certain animals were deemed unclean and why other animals were deemed clean. There's there's some ideas about like the health of those things, and that may be true. There may have been some things tied to the health of these things or not of the other things. I don't think it can be that simple though. Like even if you just, as an aside, look at verse 21. Like, one of the things he says not to eat is an animal that has died naturally. He says, like, that is unclean for you. Don't eat that. But I don't think it's because of health reasons, because he turns right around and says, but you can give it to the sojourners amongst you, right? Like, if he was just saying, oh, this is bad for your health, I don't think he would turn and say, but give it to these people. Like, this, <laughs> like, give, like, I don't think it's that simple. It may have had some to do with health. I don't know. But what we do know is that God made a point, and he repeats it here in Deuteronomy, these same rules he had given 40 years ago, that there are things I don't want you to eat. There are things that are okay to eat. There are things that I don't want you to eat. And I think the overarching undeniable reason is that God wanted them to know, even at the level of their diet, he wanted them to be obedient to him. Even at the level of what they would eat, he wanted them to say, I eat this because God has said it's good. And I don't eat this because God has said not to. And I don't necessarily know all the reasons, but I follow the Lord even in what I eat. One of the commentators I read this week said this. He said, a God who governs the kitchen should not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. And I thought that was well said. If every single day as they come to eat and they have to think, we can't eat that, like God has, has carved that off as off limits for us. They're thinking every day about what is okay to eat, what is not. They're learning to orient the entirety of their life around what God has told them to do and who he has called them to be. Hopefully this is good news for you that as new covenant people, if we're united with Christ, we are not bound by these stipulations about, you know, I don't even know what an ibex is or like I don't know what a lot of these animals are. Another time, if you want, read Acts chapter 10. Uh, there in the New Testament, God gives Peter, one of the apostles, this vision of heaven of all these animals coming down in a sheet that were, based on texts like today's, unclean animals. And then God tells him, arise, Peter, kill and eat them. And Peter is like taken aback, like, what? Like, you're the God who told us not to do this. How can you tell us to do this? And he says something to the effect of, this is not verbatim, but what the Lord says is clean, don't call unclean. I'm telling you it's okay to eat now. And so as new covenant people, we don't have to uh, follow all these laws about what insects they can eat and what birds and what uh, sea creatures, oh, that doesn't have scales, like I can't eat. Uh, Like we don't have to think in these categories because we've been freed from the law and, and bondage to it through the work of Jesus. And we can eat with freedom. But I would say that even on the level of what we eat, we should be thoughtful about what we consume. Right? Not in a legalistic way, not in a that I'm trying to follow laws, but in the spirit of myself and how I'm approaching food. I think if we're Christians, we should consume things in a uniquely Christian way. Not like there's a, a Christian way to chew or to swallow or things like that, but at a heart level. A couple of things I would say just briefly. One is as we eat and drink, I think we should do so thankfully, right? 
Like we should do so remembering that these things that I'm eating are gifts from God. Food doesn't magically show up on my table or show up on the shelves. Food does not just magically appear. It comes through the creation of God and then his provision of us, right? Our, our food is given to us from God. Jesus said, give us, to, taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? Even if we knew it was coming, we should view it as coming from the hand of God. So we should eat thankfully. I think when we eat our food, when we consume things, we should do so honorably, and what I mean by that is not to, to eat or drink in ways that show that we're like gluttonous, that we're just devouring things just with no self-control, and we're not uh, consuming alcohol in ways that lead to drunkenness and self-control. We should eat and drink honorably, and we should eat and drink, I'd say, purposefully, that, that we should, and I'm convicted by this even this week, that we should not just be controlled by our food and drink where we become passive consumers of these things, but to, to be governors of what we take into our bodies, that we should be purposeful in what we eat and what we don't eat, right? Uh, we, so we should be thankful, we should be honorable, and we should be purposeful in what we consume. But praise God, we can eat bacon, right? I think I can get an amen on all that. Yes, very, oh man, that got some applause. Okay, uh, last category here so he talks about food our funerals talks about about food and then he gives them these rules about what i'm calling finances he's talking more about crops how to how to deal with the the, the fruit of their harvest or their animals uh, but I, i'm going to call it finances this is in verses 23 or 22 excuse me through the end of the chapter he talks a lot about in this section he gives them these laws about tithes right about tithing uh, again, he's not giving them some new law other than the last couple verses, 28 and 29, are kind of a, a new thing that didn't appear uh, in previous law that every three years tithing. But most of this is Moses just to this new generation telling them to do what God had already told them to do 40 years ago. Uh, tithes are a tenth of something, right? Like if you divide something up into ten. It's taking that first one. And God had given them various commands. You could look these up like Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18 are the two primary places. God had given them these different commands about what to do with the first tenth of various things. Uh, to bring as a sacrifice or to give in certain ways. And there's going to be more on this, which we'll get more time to talk about in Deuteronomy 26 later on. Uh, in a, a few months probably. Um, but he gives them the, these directions here in the end of chapter 14 about what to do with these tithes, uh, what to do with these first tenths. And I would just summarize what he says uh, in two ways. He tells them to do one of two things with it, either to take that first tenth of these various things and either give it to other people, I'll, I'll share who those are in a second, or, and we don't often think about tithes this way, to enjoy it themselves, in the pre but in the presence of God, like in a certain way. So he says, and sometimes they need to give that first tenth to other people, right? Like if you look at verse 27, uh, he says, to not neglect the Levite who's within their towns, 
because he has no portion or inheritance with you. There's a long backstory to that. I don't have time to get into. But Levites were a special category, a special tribe amongst the nation of Israel who didn't have their own land. They were the ones from whom priestly workers would come, things like that. And so these other tribes, the people of Israel, needed to help provide for them. Like they were very much dependent on these other tribes to help fund them, to help provide for them. So those other tribes were to take a tenth of various things and give it to the Levites and, and trust to them to care for their brothers and sisters in that tribe. Or if you look at verse 29, he says this every three year tithe, he says should be brought into their uh, town, into this, this unique place, and then the Levites can have from it. But then he also mentions people like the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, he says those, those are categories of vulnerable people who may not have had means themselves. And he's saying, you all bring your tenth into the town every three years and they can benefit from it. Like the things God's blessed you with, share it with people who are in need in the community. So there's a couple categories who he says, sometimes with these tithes you give it to other people. But he also says earlier in this chapter, that first paragraph, we don't think of tithes this way a lot, but that sometimes that first tenth was to be enjoyed by the people themselves. Like, but to be brought to this particular place and eaten in the presence of God. Like, look at verse 23, right? Or 22, he says, tithe of all the, all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And he says, and before the Lord your God, in the place he'll choose, and he gives some caveats of what that place is, that he's making his name dwell there. He says, when you take it to that place, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And so some of these they were supposed to bring to this particular place, Jerusalem eventually or these other places, and they would eat it themselves. Like, but they would eat it in the presence of God. And I think why God is having them do that, he says, is to learn to fear the Lord your God. It was to remind them, you all didn't just get this by your own sweat of your brow. Like you didn't just get this food by your own labor, by your own intensity, like your own work ethic. You got this because I gave it to you. And like you bringing it into my presence and eating it with me, enjoying it with me is a reminder to you of where this truly came from. And to not live under the illusion that you're just producing for yourself. I use the word finances for this section um, because most of us don't have, if you're anything like me, you don't have animals, you're not growing crops, uh, you're not producing your own wine, things like this. Uh, we don't have those things, but in our economy, we do typically have income that comes from our work. We get paychecks or compensation for the things that we do in the marketplace. And the Lord cares about how we use those resources. He cared about how they use their crops, how they use their, their animals that the Lord blessed them with, and he cares for us about how we use the resources that God grants us, right? I think in the same spirit, we are to use the things that the Lord gives to us to give to other people, right? But also to enjoy ourselves, but in honorable ways that show we remember God gave it to us. That we're not to just use our money on whatever I feel like using it on. Uh, and prioritize whatever I see fit. But we should use our funds that God blesses with us to be generous first towards other people. Like you see that modeled here with these tithes. To, to give, uh, I don't think 
this is me on behalf of our elders. I, or I'll just speak for myself on this because I did not talk with them about this. I don't think that New Testament commands tithing in like a tenth, like you have to give a tenth of your income, gross or net or whatever. You have to give it directly to a local congregation. I think it commends even way broader, deeper principles of generosity toward the mission of God. I think it does model giving to a local pooled fund of church, and I would encourage you to do that. But I don't think we're bound by this. I've got to just figure out what a tenth is and make sure I give that. But we are to be generous with what the Lord blesses us with. To give to the mission of God, they gave to the Levites, right? I think it is vital and important for us to give to ministries and to give to missionaries and give to works of pastors and churches to help fund what God has gifted us and called us to do. But we're also called to give to people who are in need, right? We have a benevolence fund as a church, if you don't know that, that you can give to at any time. I would encourage you to give to where we pull resources from our church body to give to people who are in need who are in financial hardship, who are in places where they have difficulty with paychecks or bills that are with getting a paycheck or bills that are due. And so we try to do that as a church family and encourage you to do that as well, to try to find people who are in need to give of what God's given you. But also we are called to enjoy the resources that God has given us but to use them in ways that honor him, that please him. Not just, I'm going to invest it however I want. A New Testament text that gives this principle, I'll encourage you to read it later, is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Talk as clearly as you can in the New Testament to us as Christians about being generous and following the example of Jesus. Not just trying to follow a law because God says, give this much, do this, make sure you give this percentage to people. But he says, look, Paul tells them, look at what Jesus did for you. The one who became, or who was rich, became poor so that you might become rich. And he says, live that way yourself. Like God has richly blessed you. He's, as I look around this room, there is so much resource God has blessed us with. And I know some of us lack, but there is so much resource God has blessed us with. And what he calls us to is not follow some rigid law, but say, consider what Christ has given for you. Consider what he has given up, the sacrifice of himself, and take now what I've blessed you with and live the same. Go and do likewise find ways that you can be a blessing, ways that you can further the work of Christ through your generosity. And so God cares about funerals, food, finances, and that's just getting started. God cares about every dimension of your life. We sang a song earlier, Take My Life. I love that song. I don't know if we sang this uh, verse, but it it has one of my favorite lyrics, uh, the original longer version of that song has one of my favorite lyrics of any hymn uh it's it uses this phrase at the end of it where it says ever only all for thee like that's how we're to live our life is ever only all for thee and i want to emphasize the all this morning because i think that's what this text would emphasize us is the entirety of your life if you're a christian is to be lived for jesus because he died for you He's raised for you. He has bought you. He has made you a new creation. Not just some thin sliver of you. He's made you into a new person who every minute, every dimension of life is to be lived for him by his grace. Amen? I invite you to stand. We're going to sing one last song uh, and then I'm going to leave you with a word of benediction. But let's, let's pray together uh, asking for the Lord's help to live truly, ever only, all for Christ.
Father in heaven, we uh, come through a text like this and it could feel so foreign to us. Ancient words given to an ancient person, but we know, or to ancient people, but we know it is your word even to us. And so thank you for it. God, thank you for what is taught in it, that for your people, all of life is to be lived for you. So we pray for your help with that, that in these domains of how we grieve, how we eat, how we give, God, may you help us to live uh, more and more as those who are truly your sons and daughters, who are, are holy for you. And God, we pray as we sing uh, that we may be able to express that as our commitment to you, and we pray that you would move among us, giving us increased thankfulness in our hearts, that we don't have to earn your love, earn your favor, earn our standing with you by our good works, but that we can live lives of obedience out of thankfulness, out of gratefulness of heart. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.